Our first scripture reading today comes from the last chapter of Genesis and is found on page 46 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So I have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the Gospel of Matthew, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. It's a different translation. It appears differently in different uh, translations. Some say 70 times seven Some say 77. The confusion is how hard it is to multiply Roman numerals. (laughs) Claire clearly is using Arabic numerals. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one of them who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay... The Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all of his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of the slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seized him by the throat and said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have mercy and patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. This Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ouch. That's amen. Let's pray. Sometimes the words of Scripture cause us to chafe 
And we really hope that we can come up with an interpretation that makes it easier to live with those words. Give us instead your spirit that allows us to receive and be changed by those words to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let me thank with, uh, start with a quick, quick thanks to Elder Hine for covering the pulpit last week. Um, I told Carrie Joseph that I had to get back here in a hurry because I think two weeks of that and I'd be looking for a job. So thank you, Chris. There is a moment in every ecumenical worship gathering that I really, really enjoy. Churches of many traditions and denominations come together to profess their unity and to celebrate the common dimensions of our shared faith. I love these experiences. As Catholics and Protestants, Episcopalians and Methodists, Baptists and Presbyterians, Lutherans and members of free church traditions pray and praise together without incident. Though through the ages, these groups have literally shed one another's blood over their identifications. A few times a year, we come together and in our unity express our sense of forgiveness. The moment that I find truly delightful in ecumenical gatherings is when we join in one voice to speak the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. You can feel the anticipation as soon as it begins. It's like a slow-moving train wreck right up to the words as they unfold with familiarity. You know what's coming. Now, there's that slight trip at the beginning when some people say, hallowed be thy name, and others say, holy be thy name. That's no big deal. It's just one word. We all know what we mean. But you get to that point, and there's that moment where we also find at the end that Protestants have a longer Our Father than do the Catholics. You've been there, right? You've been at a wedding or a funeral at a Catholic Mass, and you say the Lord's Prayer, and you get to the very end there, and you say, but deliver us from evil, and you're saying, but thine is the kingdom and the power, the... and everybody else has gone silent, right? Yeah. Curiously enough, it's one of those rare moments where the Roman Catholics have the text more accurate than do Protestants. That that doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer was tacked on at a later date uh, and was not part of the Protestant liturgy until Queen Elizabeth I decided that it should be in the prayer book so that we wouldn't sound Catholic. If you look at the early manuscripts of both Matthew and Luke, those words don't fall in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, they were inserted later. So English-speaking Protestants have been tripped up ever since. But that's not the real exciting part. It is when you arrive at that point where we say, forgive us our... And you can hear people kind of pause. Is this a trespasses church? Is this a debts church? Is this a sins church? Don't tell me it's forgive us the wrong we have done. And then all of a sudden, you, you, you say whatever it is you say, and then everybody pauses so that the trespassers can catch up, right? <laughs> or as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it's like, yeah, we've been waiting for you. Come on, come on, come on. Just hit it with sins. You're on your way. It's easy. 
the reality is that we are all translating the same Greek text and it is all dependent on exactly the same Aramaic word in which Jesus first taught the prayer to his disciples. They're all different English dimensions of that same word. And you look around and say, we have some notion of what it means to share a common lot of sinners or debtors or trespassers. But I love the cacophony. I love the fact that we get to that point and we all kind of vibrate a little bit to listen in to see whether or not we're right. And occasionally at ecumenical gatherings when I am uh, leading worship, I just tell people to take your tradition and say it loud and say it proud. We stumble over what it is that we are asking God to forgive and what we are being asked to forgive, but we spend more time on the quality of the sinfulness rather than the nature of forgiveness, which is a lot like the way we handle the world around us. Uh, I'll, I'll forgive you, but let me explain to you just how awful you have been and in what ways you have been awful before we get around to the notion of forgiveness. Because heaven forbid that I forgive you for something that was not the full dimension of how vile you happen to be. It isn't that we worry about the forgiveness, it's that we fixate on the dimensions of sin. So when Peter comes to Jesus regarding the limits of forgiveness, we completely understand exactly what Peter is asking, right? Peter wanted a countable number. And since in Hebrew tradition, seven was the number of perfection, the, the word seven in Hebrew is Shabbat, the seventh day, the holy day, then seven must be the right answer. And of course, Jesus shoots back, and I like the 70 times seven, because it does involve multiplication. And so 490 times, as Chris pointed out, that's an uncountable number. Unless you're particularly OCD, I would challenge you to figure out exactly how many times you've forgiven someone until you hit 490, looking forward to 491 when you can finally seek retribution. Jesus goes on to tell a story, as he often does, the parable of the king who forgives a great debt to one servant, who when faced with the opportunity to forgive another trivial amount with one of his colleagues, fails to do so. And the king is furious. Verse 32, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you. Never mind the character or the size of the infraction, we pray each week that God forgive us as we forgive others. Now the lectionary compilers for this Jesus encounter pair it with a wonderful story from Genesis about Joseph and his brothers. In the punchline of the story, it began way back in Genesis 37, and we're now in Genesis 51. So it's a long, long, long story. We learn about Jacob, who had many sons, and Joseph, who was the next to the youngest, and a royal pain in the neck to his elder brothers. They take the opportunity to kill him. That was their first choice. And then they chose the less hostile thing to sell him into slavery. They could always say, well, at least we didn't kill him. But they tell their dad when they come back home that Joseph was uh, eaten by bears. 
Here in Genesis 41, they realize how their father, 51, is, they realize their father is dead. And perhaps Joseph's forgiveness knows limits because now that dad isn't watching, he can do to them what they did to him. Dad wasn't watching when they sold him into slavery, so they come with a bargain saying, okay, we'll be your slaves because we also know that given your position in the Egyptian court, you could just have us all put to death. But Joseph, as Shannon pointed out, offers unbounded forgiveness for all that they did. I think it's important to just quickly review the middle of the story. When they sold Joseph into a band of wandering Ishmaelites as a slave, the Ishmaelites came to Egypt and sold Joseph to Potiphar, who was one of the generals in the Egyptian army. And Potiphar was impressed with Joseph's administrative abilities, and so he puts him over the whole household. But then Potiphar's wife thinks that Joseph is really, really hot. In fact, I love the way that the text puts it in Genesis 39.6. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking. In case you didn't know what handsome meant, the redundancy is great. Anyway, Joseph has his own Me Too moment with Potiphar's wife. She accuses him of coming on to her when it was the other way around. So Potiphar comes home and Joseph is thrown unjustly into prison. And he's there for well over two years. He's in an Egyptian jail cell. Lots of time for him to grow in his bitterness about his brothers. If they wouldn't have sold him into slavery, he would not be stuck here in an Egyptian prison cell. Things turned for Joseph, and he receives a command in the Department of the Interior and as Secretary of Agriculture for Pharaoh. And that's when his brothers come searching for food. There's a famine in the land, and the only place that has excess grain happens to be Egypt because of Joseph's shrewd negotiation of uh, agricultural futures. And so they come, they don't know it's Joseph, he kind of jerks them around for a little while, and then he reveals that indeed I am the brother that you sold into slavery. They're all amazed, and he says, look, go back and get dad, bring your kids, bring your wives, bring everything you've got, and you can settle here in Egypt in the land of Goshen. Uh, which, by the way, is an old-timey sentence that is used for a sense of freedom or release. Land of Goshen the place where you end up that you didn't anticipate that turns out to be wonderful. Use that next time if you want to confuse people. Having suffered much, Joseph comprehends what it means to forgive. The very suffering that his brothers had placed upon him did not build his resentment, but built his sense of Forgiveness, which delightfully is exactly what Shannon was trying to convey, that that sense of pain inflicted on self, the question is, do you want to take and inflict that pain on others, or in the act of forgiveness, do we use that pain to increase our capacity for empathy and compassion? Joseph learned what the slave in Jesus' parable did not learn. Freedom from suffering should build the capacity 
to forgive. His brothers are willing to sell themselves into slavery under Joseph, just as they had years ago sold him into slavery with the Ishmaelites, but he doesn't go there. And here's the moment. Joseph never prayed the Lord's Prayer. I'm pretty confident about that. He never stumbled over the differences between trespasses and debts and sins or done wrong. He certainly knew them all, though, at the hands of his brothers. Forgive us as we forgive, says the Lord's Prayer. And here, hundreds of years before Peter was negotiating forgiveness with Jesus, Joseph responds, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Forgive us as we forgive. Let that soak in for a moment. Every time we fail to forgive, every time we hold that grudge, every time we make that other person pay for what they've done, we're saying that God is wrong and that the court of our petty opinion supersedes God's boundless grace. I can't tell you how many times in counseling I have worked with people who struggle and what's on the table is their incapacity to forgive another. I'm trying to forgive, but I just don't know how, they will say. Well, the story of the king and the slave is a pretty good lesson. The slave owned, owed the king a fortune, beyond imagination to be able to pay. But in compassion, the king decided to eat the loss and move on. The slave was restored to his life as if the debt did not exist. And who paid for that? The king paid for that. Now, you know for a fact the king probably never loaned that slave money again, but going forward the debt was no longer counted against him. And it was an activity that took place within the king's heart not between the king and the debtor. We keep trying to negotiate forgiveness based on the response of the person we're trying to forgive. If only they would change, then I could forgive. If only they'd pay the debt, then I'd call it even. If only they would be nice to me, then I would be nice back to them. But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is the transaction that happens purely within our hearts. Now, don't be mistaken. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Like I said, the king probably didn't loan the slave any more money in the future. But forgiveness is the choice in our hearts to say, I will no longer allow what you have done to me to reside bitterly in my heart. I will free myself from that disposition. Forgiveness happens even when the other person isn't in the room. Even in those moments where the other person has passed away and gone on to their punishment or glory, it is about ourselves in forgiveness that our hearts say, I'm no longer going to allow this to reside with me. 
It's been said unforgiveness is allowing your enemy to live rent-free in your head. And that sense of eviction is about the forgiver, not the forgiven. It was the shift of the internal accounting of the king to eat the debt of the slave. God's grace to us is the best example. God is not looking for us to reach out to merit forgiveness. God forgives us through the bounty of God's own grace, not through the activity of our penance. It is a change in God about us. It isn't a change that happens between ourselves and God. It is the free grace that God says, I am not going to count your sins, your debts, your trespasses, your naughty things, fill in the blank. I am not going to count them against you. I will still love you. I will still give you grace. I forgive you. And in transactional sense, it is a debt that we say was paid by Christ on the cross in his death and confirmed in his resurrection. But more importantly, it is not about us. It's about the nature of God. And as we forgive those around us, it is not about them. It is about ourselves and whether or not we can find in our hearts the capacity to let it go. Whenever we fail to wipe out that loss of others against us, as Joseph said, we are pretending to be God. God maybe forgives you, but I know better. The absurdity of the sentence is almost hard to say. But that is what Joseph says to his brothers. I am not God. I forgive you. As God asks, should we not have mercy on our fellows as God has mercy on us? Amen. Please stand and join with me in the affirmation of faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ.